I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to find life in the midst of sorrow. I'm Aaron Bishop, here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey guys. And today we are beginning the book of Job. Well, okay, so we're not really beginning the book of Job. We're going to do kind of an introductory discussion on the book of Job. Introduce it, the author, what point of history it was written in, just explore some of the themes and things of that nature that we're going to see as we begin to go through the book of Job. So, as we said last time we were on, we took a month off. And what a month it has been. Not much of a break for us, but it was a month off from the podcast. <laughs> That's correct. So we uh, we traveled to Omaha to see a lot of my family, a lot of people, many of which I haven't seen in 20 years. Uh, my immediate family, the last time we were all together was 2014. So it's been eight years since I've seen my sister from Washington State. But the rest of my family, aunts, uncles, cousins, a lot of them I hadn't seen since just after we were just married. Just after we got married, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was a great experience. And then on the way home, we found out that some of the people who had been there had come down with COVID. And we also found out that our destination (laughs) where we were going also had COVID. And somehow we were able to thread the needle between both both places. And uh, we were COVIDless. We were able to get to arrive back home COVIDless. In the midst of all of that COVID. So that was just a great experience to not have to experience COVID again. Because it was bad enough the first time. Right. After that, we did Swap. So Swap was a huge success. Do you want to tell them about it? Yeah, it was It was pretty spectacular. We had at, at least 100 families come through. We had the ability to help several different charities with donations And just being able to pray with people, being able to minister to people, being able to just hear people's story and and sit with them and let them kind of tell where they're at and what they really need, which oftentimes was more than just clothes. So it was a real blessing to a whole bunch of people, us included. Yeah, it was very good. It was a good event. And we were featured on the news yet again, about every year that we do this. One news station or another will show up and do a story on us. Uh, This year it was the Fox affiliate. The local Fox affiliate came and interviewed Rebecca and got some shots of us setting up, uh, which was a great driver to get people actually to the event. Um, That was really nice this year. Yeah. So for the past three weeks, we have just been running hard. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, we are back and we are back at it. Uh, another little piece of news that occurred in the past couple weeks. Uh, I recently signed a 
publishing contract for my first book. So I am going to be a published author uh, before the end of the year. Super exciting. Super exciting. So yeah, we'll keep you updated on that as it gets closer, when it's going to come out, where you can find it, so on and so forth. But uh, super excited to be able to actually get that out there. Um, those of you who've followed us any length of time, you've heard me talk about the books I wanted to write. Well, one of them is finished and in the publisher's hands, and they're in the process of doing all the things that they need to do to get it published. So All the publishery things. Yeah, we're really excited about that. So that brings us to the book of Job. So we've been going through the wisdom literature. We did Ecclesiastes, and now we're in the book of Job. Which, quite frankly, is one of my favorite books, if not my ultimate favorite book. I I love it for um, so many reasons, but the the beauty of God actually responding to Job, the sarcasm that is just yeah. <laughs> prevalent and beautiful, um, the, the expression of God's nature mm. throughout it. It's just phenomenal. And the, and the audacity of a human being to be righteous in God's eyes. Mm, to, or to believe that they're that their righteousness will earn them anything in God's eyes. Well, just the fact that God even says to Satan, have you considered my my servant Job? He is righteous and upright. Right. It's it's audacious. The the fact that that can exist. Yeah, the book of Job, it's full of all sorts of just wonderful um, contemplations of suffering. And, yeah. and that's one of the things I really like about this book is the psychological aspects of the book. Something we're going to get into just a little bit later, but this book does an excellent job of accurately portraying the psychologies of various peoples and various standpoints of dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it, we're gonna we're gonna explore some of that as we go through the book, and maybe use some of these ideas of when we speak about the friends and their their various speeches and what they have to say, because they present caricatures or archetypes of people who attempt to come alongside someone who is suffering, and uh, they while they themselves aren't necessarily accurately portrayed and when i say that um it's not a snapshot it's not it's not a movie you know it's not it's not something that someone sat down and dictated or took dictation while these people were making their speeches if so then these people speak poetry off the cuff amazingly better Uh, than eminem better than eminem (laughs) (laughs) you're right yeah they i mean they all of them all four of the friends and even job himself they speak hebrew poetry which isn't common. It's not something that you find in other books. And so that's one of the ways we can know that this isn't necessarily an accurate portrayal of the events as they happened. Right. It is more of a philosophical work. Now, that's not to say that Job wasn't a real person. So that's one of the first questions is, first of all, who wrote Job? Do you have any idea? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And if you did have an idea, <laughs> I would call you a liar because no one knows who wrote Job. There's yeah. no, there's no, there's indication no idea of authorship. 
as as to who wrote the book. So the follow up question then is, who is Job? Well, there are quite a few options. There are at least four options as to who Job could be. So the first one is a man named Jobab. Uh, it's often considered that Job is one of the oldest books ever. Mm-hmm. And there's some language used throughout that kind of gives us that hint that maybe this is older than uh, anything else that, that was written in the Bible. And actually, all four of the options of who could be Job are all pre-Moses. Mm-hmm. And regardless of who it is, this particular person was the not necessarily the oldest person that we have a story of, but the oldest book that was written, written before the Torah was written. So Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations. Uh, Genesis 10, the flood has happened. Uh, they've come off the ark. Hamsham and Japheth, they all have their sons. And it's basically the table list of 70 names. It's called the Table of Nations. These 70 sons become the nations of the world. Okay. One of the sons that's listed is a son of Shem. In verse 29. Of what chapter? Genesis 10. Okay, that's right. Uh, And two Heber were born two sons. The name of one was Phaleg, starting verse 25. Because in his days the earth was divided, and the name of his brother was Jekton, and Jekton begot Elmodad, and Salat, and Sarmonat, and Jarach, and Adora, and Ibel, and Dekala, Ival, and Abamiel, and Saba, and Ufer, and Evila and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jekton. Uh, last name there, Jobab. That's who uh, some scholars will point to, some traditions will point to as being Job. He is the man, Jobab, who was the son of Jekton, who was a grandson, grandson of... great-great-grandson of Shem. Shem, okay. Okay, so he's a Shemite. He is, he is a descendant of Shem. And in all of these, he is a descendant of Shem. Every All four options. So that is the first option of who Job could be. And Shem was the righteous son of the three. Yes, Shem is the father of Abraham. Okay. Of the great, 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 ten, ten generations of great of Abraham. So this Jobab would have been like a great, great, great uncle of Abraham. Of Abraham, okay. Okay, so... There is that option. The next potential option is in Genesis chapter 36, verse 33 through 34. All right, so Genesis chapter 36, verse 33 through 34. Again, just a list of names, but this time it is the list of the names of the sons of Edom, Esau. This This is not a Hebrew. Where it is a Hebrew, it is a descendant of Abraham, but it is not a descendant of Jacob. Not Israel. Not a son of the promise. Not a son of the promise. So Genesis 36, we're going to start in verse 31 and read through verse 34. These are the kings which reigned in Edom before a king reigned in Israel. And Balak, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Denebah. And Balak died, and Jobab, son of Zarah from Basara, reigned in his stead. And Jobab died, and Asim from the land of the Temanites reigned in his stead. So there we have it, Jobab. Another Jobab who was an Edomite. Is that Balak, son of Balaam? The That's not the Balak. No, that is not the same Balak. Even though it is Balak, son of Balaam. 
Actually, maybe it is. Uh, no, because he was a Midianite. Or, or he was a, the one from the Book of Numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Balaam was the son of Baor. Okay. But uh, it's not the same. Maybe it's the oh, same Oh, Balak was the king, and Balaam was the right. Bala- prophet Balak guy. Balak was the king okay, of okay. Midian. Or... Weird that yeah. those names coincide there. Well, I mean, the same there's course. multiple Jobabs, as we have already well, seen. That's true. They're common names. Names like uh, Joshua, we see multiple right. times in scripture. Uh, we see uh, Avimelech multiple times in scripture. Um, and it's just like today, there are multiple people in this world with my name. In fact, you know a person with your name. That's true. I do. Who lived in our same apartment complex. That's true. And who got your... <laughs> no, I no, got, we, her we got her credit report. Credit report. Had to go take it to her. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. So, yes, uh, that is... Uh, it's not uncommon. Yeah. And it's one of the things that actually gives the Bible some, some legitimacy. Is that... Not everybody has their own unique name. There are names that are reused over and over in different ages, different periods, and even somewhat peers of each other. You know, I've, I've met many Aaron's in my life. I'm not the only one. So that is the second option, is this son of Edom, uh, who was the, what, the second king of Edom, after Edom became a nation and, and set up kings. The third option, and this is the Jewish option, this is the one that uh, the rabbis go with, is from Genesis 46, verse 13. So again, a bunch of names being listed. Genesis chapter 46, 10 chapters later, is when Jacob goes down into Egypt. So Jacob uproots his family from Canaan, who's in the midst of a famine, and he travels down to Egypt with his 12 sons and their sons, and it lists 70 or 75 names, depending on who you're reading. And who's counting. And who and who's counting, right. <laughs> so in verse 13 of Genesis 46, we read, The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. That name Yov, that is the name Job. Issachar had a son named Job. <laughs> who knew? So Jews around the world have picked out this son, the son of Issachar, as the man Job from the story. How okay. accurate is that? I had no idea. Uh, right. This, the events of Job's life don't necessarily seem to line up with the story of the son of Issachar, who would have lived in Canaan and then moved to Egypt and presumably stayed there till he died. Mm-hmm. Because Job was from the land of Uz, as we're going to find out. Uz. Uz. <laughs> um, or uh, from a land with a different name, which we will find out here in just a second in the fourth option. And so that is the Jewish option. If you go to a Jewish rabbi, you go to tradition, uh, you read through any of their extra-biblical works about Job, they're going to pinpoint it as this guy right here. The final option, which comes to us from the Septuagint. No, I don't. I do, but I don't. I can't remember. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written in the 2nd century BCE. So you have Alexander the Great, who conquered the world, uh, mm-hmm. defeated the Persians, conquered Israel, Mesopotamia, the entire area there. He died very early on, and his empire was broken into four empires. One of them was the Seleucid Empire, which covered the area of Israel, but the area of Egypt was covered by the Ptolemaic Empire, Emperor Ptolemy. And so the story goes that Ptolemy was a fan of 
mythologies from around the world. Okay. And he wanted to be able to read the Hebrew Bible because it was only ever written in Hebrew. So he summoned 70 Jewish rabbis to come and to translate the Hebrew Bible independently into Greek. And the legend goes that these 70 people, independently in their own rooms, not conferring with each other, each translated the Hebrew Bible, and when they compared them all, they matched exactly. exactly the same. That's the legend surrounding the Septuagint. Well, if we turn to the Septuagint and we turn to the book of Job, we will find that there is extra verses at the end of the book. Hmm. Uh huh. So in the normal Bible, Job ends in verse 17. And Job died an old man and full of days. Done. Hard stop. End of the book. The Septuagint then goes on for quite some time. And uh, I'll go ahead and read the entire thing since that's probably the only time that we will read this section of the book of Job. And it is written that he will rise again with those whom the Lord raises up. This man is described in the Syriac book as living in the land of Ausus, on the borders of Idumea and Arabia. So Idumea is Edom. And his name before was Jobab. And having taken an Arabian wife, he begot a son whose name was Enon. And he himself was the son of his father, Zer, one of the sons of Esau, and his mother, Basorah, so that he was the fifth from Abraham. And these were the kings who reigned in Edom, which country he also ruled over, first Balak, the son of Baor, and the name of the city was Denebah. But after Balak, Jobab died, who is called Job, and after him, Esau, who was governor of the country of Themam, and after him, Adad, the son of Barad, who destroyed Midian in the plains of Moab, and the name of the city is Gethaim. And his friends who came to him were Eliphaz of the children of Esau, king of the Themites, Beldad, the Sovoth of the Taukians, and Shofar, the king of Menenaeus. So that actually lines up with one of the other ones that we were exactly, saying before. Exactly, exactly. It is not its own. It actually agrees with the Genesis 36 Jobab, which is why I pulled that one out, because the Septuagint points to that Jobab from Genesis 36, the list of the sons of Edom, first, second king of the land of Edom. Guess what? According to the Septuagint, that's the Job that this book is written about. Hmm. And his friends, they weren't just buddies that hung out, you know, just stopping by. They were kings in their own right. Huh, that's the king of Menaeus, the king of the Salkinians, and the king of the Thamanites. I wonder if anyone has done any research on the three friends, because if you can prove that those were the names of kings, then you'd have a much better... I don't know that we even have any kind of records that go that far back. Because remember, this is five generations after Abraham, but long before Moses, long before the Torah, and we barely have anything that survives from the Torah. Yeah. The the only people who kept records of that kind from that age, now we have anything that survived are the Akkadians, the Egyptians, and um, there's another, I can't remember, off the top of my head, there's another... One other nation that we have some surviving manuscripts. Okay. They don't appear to be major kings, major players in the world stage. Uh, But according to this, Job was a king, which is why he was so rich and so famous and so had so many things. Sense, yeah. Why he had so many children and so on and so forth. Regardless, so this is, in all likelihood, at least as far as the two witnesses go, Mm -hmm. this is likely the man Job. So he was an Edomite. He was a son of Esau, 
not a son of Jacob, hmm. which uh, kind of blew my mind the first time that I discovered that. Well, this was before, this still would have been a son of Abraham, mm -hmm. but it was not a son of the promise. Right. But this would have been one of the first examples of someone of the nations who was, was righteous. righteous in God's eyes. Right, right. Which, uh, which is super important that there there are righteous people outside of the the of the covenant chosen people. So yeah, to speak. because before Abraham, there wasn't a specific chosen people. There wasn't a right. specific covenant people. Right. So everyone was outside the covenant, if you will, or yeah. inside the covenant, whichever way you want, because there wasn't a covenant. Right. But, um. But once the covenant was set, this would have been one of the first recorded, at least, instances of a person outside the covenant being considered righteous. Right, yeah. It's very interesting to think that he was an Edomite king and that uh, this is the guy that God said, Debbie considered him. He's righteous. Yeah. And you think about that in contrast to say Nebuchadnezzar, mm, right? Another king that God specifically has says he has chosen, mm -hmm. but he has chosen Nebuchadnezzar for shame, mm -hmm. ultimately. Right, and he brought both of them to an extreme low. Well. It's also... Um, but one was righteous and one was not. Right. It's also like uh, King Darius, who was chosen. In fact, he was chosen to the point where Isaiah wrote his name in the book of Isaiah nearly a century before King Darius was born. That wasn't Darius. Yeah. Or That was... Uh, Cyrus. Cyrus. Sorry. King Cyrus. Right. The Persian king. And his story is fascinating. Mm -hmm. If you read the story of Cyrus... For those of you who don't know anything about Cyrus, Cyrus was a shepherd, and he lived in, I forget what land he lived in, but he lived just after the founding of Zoroastrianism. Uh, so Zoroastrianism is the religion that believes that there are two major gods, one good, one evil, and all of the gods of the earth conform themselves to either the good side or the evil side. And all of the earth is being... Um, ushered towards a final battle or a final war to determine whether good or evil will win. Hmm. And so Cyrus saw it as his duty as a Zoroastrian to begin to conquer the world for the side of good. His, his gods were good, and so he decided to conquer the world as good. And so when he conquered, per when he conquered uh, Babylon and set up Persia, God comes to him, he reads the book of the scroll of Isaiah, and he pinpoints the God of Israel as one of the good gods, hmm. which is why he then allows Israel to be restored to the land, and why he funds them to be restored and to funds the worship and decrees all of the, this favor towards Israel hmm. is because of this. Now, what's really cool is the passage in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 45, where God says, I am the God who brings peace, and I also bring evil. There is none beside me. He is speaking to Cyrus, 
There are Mm. no other gods. I am the only God, he's saying to Cyrus. There is no evil God. I am he. I am it. Isaiah 45, uh, beginning in verse 4, it says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, mine elect, I will call thee by name and accept thee, but thou hast not known me. For I am the Lord God, and there is no other God besides me. I strengthen thee, and thou hast not known me, that they may come from the east, and they that come from the west may know that there is no God but but me. I am the Lord God, and, and there is none beside. I am he that prepared light and formed darkness, who makes peace and creates evil. I am the Lord God who does all these things. That is very appropriate for the book of Job It's extremely well. appropriate for the book of Job. Cyrus also was a man of the nations who God spoke to in language he would understand. And when we read this passage, it's not just God, oh, hey, you know what, there's none beside me. He's actually addressing Zoroastrianism and saying, there is no God of evil that's going to stand against me. I'm, I am the God who brings evil. When evil comes, it comes because I say so, mm-hmm. which is extremely appropriate for the book of Job, which I guess kind of segues us into the themes of Job, because there are several themes that we're going to see in the book of Job that uh, we're going to have the chance to explore as we go through this. I think the biggest one that that is that the book of Job is known for is the why do good people, why do righteous people suffer? Yeah, that's a big question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or even why does God allow bad things to happen? Period. Hard stop. Right Right. there. Like, that's it. Why is that even a thing? And, you know, quite frankly, when you get the all said and done, it's a because I said so. That's what the, uh, that's where Job's going to go. The book of Job is going to go with it is, yes, because God says so. We can't understand his wisdom. We can't understand his, his thoughts. We don't know what he's doing in this world. We know kind of an end goal, but we don't know why. We don't know or the how. why of it all. We don't know the how of it all. We don't, yeah, we don't get it. But. We're only human. Looking at it from multiple centuries later and reading this book, and seeing how this one book about this one guy has helped mm. countless yeah. people who have gone through suffering. Right. That could be the why. Oh, that's, that is the why for this book. For sure. this book, right. Not necessarily the why for why suffering. Sure. Um, but it's because of our sin nature. When you boil it down to it, the reason God allows us to suffer is because we broke the world. Mm -hmm. We broke the world by disobeying. And he's working to repair the world. And he wants us to come alongside him in that process of repairing the world. But we broke the world. Sin and death entered the world through Adam and through his sin. Through our choices. Through our choices. And rather than wiping us out and starting over... He allowed us to live with the consequences of that, which is things like suffering and death and trauma and pain and hardship. And the the curses of Genesis 3, we often look at them as God pronouncing curses upon Israel. But when you read them, it's more like God just revealing this is what it's going to be like now because of what you did. Mm-hmm. You did this. And the natural consequences, the fallout of that is going to be this. It's not me putting this on you. You it's chose you this. reaping the whirlwind for what you've done. Mm-hmm. And 
That's it. We're just reaping the whirlwind. That's the, why suffering happens. And the thing is that God does not want automatons. That's true. He wants us to be able to make choices. He wants us to choose him. And right. in that ability to choose, we're also given the ability to choose not him. Right. And to choose to do horrible things to each other and to choose to abuse people and, and use them and, and manipulate people. And those are the wrong choices, but right. we have to have An a choice. Yeah, there has to be an alternate choice, the ability to choose other than. Um, and yeah, it comes down to it. You don't have a relationship with a robot. Right. As much as people want to try and build robots to have relationships with, they're not having a relationship with that robot. Mm -mm. The robot doesn't talk to them. The robot doesn't push back in any way. The robot has no thoughts that are their own. It's, it's a robot. You right. can't have a relationship with it. And this is the same with God. He doesn't want us to be robots, to... to he wants relationship with us. Um, so, yeah, that is one of the major themes of Job is why do righteous people suffer? And there's a counterpoint to that, a, a corollary, if you will, to it, which is why do righteous people continue to be righteous in the face of suffering? Yeah, and that's a, honestly, that's a just as much a big point of this as the other one, because right. so many people... I mean, okay, Job's wife. Mm -hmm. Just curse God and die. Right. Like, just get it over with. Just be done with this. Yeah. Or why do you still hold on to hope? That's so stupid. God's abandoned you. Let it go. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, I've been there. I'm sure you have too. In fact, yeah. I know you have. Yeah. Where you get to that low point where everything's gone wrong and you're just in the midst of this hell. And you literally and ask God, like, please you know just kill just, me. Just, just me kill out. me. If this is what my life's going to be. Just take yep. me out. Now. I've been there. Yeah. yeah. It can definitely relate to that sentiment. Yeah. Um, another theme that is explored mostly in the latter parts of the book is the mystery of God. Just how mysterious and incomprehensible he truly is. Mm -hmm. We like to, we like to define him in various ways. We like to create terms to describe how he works in the world. But one thing I've discovered um, going through and learning the Bible and really getting to know God is he's not a system. He's not a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of systematic theology, I, I'm not a huge fan of systematic theology because it tries to break God down into a if-then statement. He pu it puts God, God too much in a box and, right. and denies the the incomprehensibility. Right. It's like, oh, well, we have this phi ratio, and this phi ratio is known. Well, it is, but it's unknown as, at the oh, same right, right. time. You can never know. You end. can never truly maybe a, yeah, maybe a better get it. Maybe a better example would be pi that most people would understand. Okay. Yeah, well, they're, be, both, they're, they're both irrational, irrational numbers. numbers that create, or that our world is based on. Right. Um, but yeah, and it, for those who don't know, going even further, an irrational number is a number that has an infinite number of places after the decimal with no that repeats. do not repeat. There's no pattern whatsoever to the numbers after the decimal. So with pi, it's 3.141592, on, 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 which describes a circle. Right. Phi then 
the one that she was talking about, the golden ratio, 1.618 on and on, it describes a spiral, uh, mm-hmm. which, which so many objects in our universe, in our, in our existence, in our everyday life. Even in our anatomy, even in every, our anatomy, everything right. is um, on the phi ratio. So yeah, the, you can know God and you can create symbols that represent God, but you can't truly know God. He's so incomprehensible. His ways are not our ways. Yeah, he's so much more than we could possibly begin to describe and understand. Right. Our brains cannot process it. And I, and I think of it, in a way, Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock, and you can see my hinder parts right. as I pass by. Right. But no human being can possibly comprehend comprehend God. No one can possibly even see God and live. Right. That's that's the God that we serve. He is so much more than any of us can possibly fathom and us trying to put him in a box so that we can comprehend him diminishes him. And he's saying, I understand your limitations. I understand that you have to do this in order to process. I get that, but I am more than that. Mm -hmm. So don't think that just because your little box says I'm this means that all is all I can be. Right. So that's the mystery of God that we're going to explore. And the corollary to it is the is the discussion on human and divine wisdom. What does human wisdom look like and what does divine wisdom look like and how are they different? And that's going to be another big theme of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first, what, 30 chapters or so are all packed full of human wisdom. Eight, uh, 36 chapters even, I think. And then it's just when you get to God's part in the last four or six chapters, however long that is, that you really get into the divine wisdom. And so much of it is you wouldn't understand. Right. You wouldn't understand. You just wouldn't get it. You weren't there. You don't know any of this. You don't see this. How can you possibly understand me when you don't even understand the world you live in? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just such a profound statement. And. I mean, we'll get into it later, but we're still today discovering new things about our world. There was a new Mm -hmm. organ, a human body organ that was discovered just within the last year. Yeah. A brand unfathomable that we're still finding organs with all of the autopsies and all of the science that we possibly have. And we just now were like, oh, hey, that's actually, that's an organ. organ. What? And, and... Another thing that just came out is our understanding of depression. It's not mm-hmm. based on chemical imbalance. We don't know that the the science behind that, that everybody's touted for so long, this is why depression happens. It's because you've got a chemical imbalance, not because of any spiritual thing or anything else or any anything else that might go on. It's chemical imbalance. Guess what? It's, it's not, not a chemical true. imbalance. Or, just or discovered that. Alzheimer's. All right. of the Alzheimer's research was based off of faulty information. Faulty information. That and trillions and trillions of dollars have been put into Alzheimer's research, trying to track down or trying to address uh, what was thought to be the problem of Alzheimer's, which, guess what? Based on faulty study. A faulty study from the 70s has completely 
shaped how people thought of Alzheimer's for decades. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the point of this is that we as humans do not have all the answers. No we matter how think we do. No matter how much we study, no matter how much we have the best of intentions, we don't know it all. Yeah, and no matter how progressed science becomes, we don't actually know. Right what's going on in our world and how things work. We think we do, but things that we think we know might be wrong mm -hmm. because somebody made a mistake carrying a tooth. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, we don't actually know. And and uh, it's just so profound, that mystery of God and the the divine wisdom his ways are not our ways his thoughts are not our thoughts he's not a human that he should lie you know there's all these descriptions of god that are this way throughout the bible and the end of job when we get to god's answer to job it is just gorgeous packed full of that you puny mortal human <laughs> you got no idea yep and just the fact that a god like would even that, would, would even, even care to bother us. right would even bother to tell him that you're a puny human and you have right, no idea right. what you're talking about right and didn't didn't you know just squash him when he when joe says it's your fault god goes, ah. okay yeah exactly <laughs> i'm so glad that god is less judgmental than i am because i would have smushed right. him right you know and I would have smushed myself, quite frankly, because I have definitely done the same thing and asked God why so many times and all of that. I'm, you know, I'm just very thankful that God is not human. And uh, and so a, a final uh, theme is God's justice, divine justice. What What is divine justice and how is it played out in the world? Because as we see in the case of Job, his physical circumstances were not a result of divine justice. It was something that came from God's throne room. It was a decree that was allowed. Yes, you may go harm my servant, but you have limits on how far you can go. Mm -hmm. But it, and I guess it, it kind of was, in a way, God's divine justice for a bigger cause, for a bigger mm -hmm. purpose. And, but um, it wasn't as a result of him... Right. It wasn't because he sinned or his sinning, parents sinned. Right. It was because of... We don't really know. It was because God said so. Right. Right. Which then leads us back to the mystery of God. Right. Human right. wisdom and it's divine all... wisdom. It's all wrapped <laughs> together. So those are just a few of the themes that we're going to dig into as we go through this book. It's, there's so many more minor themes, but those are like the really big overarching themes of the book that we're going to really dig into. One final thing that I want to just address, uh, kind of bringing it full circle, going back to what we were talking about in the beginning. The the friends, the archetypes of the friends, and their response to suffering. There's an excellent, it's not a book, it's actually a series of 30-minute of lectures that you can get on Hoopla, if you, if you are subscribed to Hoopla. If you don't know what Hoopla is, get a library card, download Hoopla, put in your library card, you have access to whatever your library has access to. Our library. Unless you're in Pickens. Oh. <laughs> regardless uh, our library has access to an awesome series of lectures that were given by kathleen o'connor kathleen m o'connor 
on the book of Job. And it is just really profound because it addresses the idea of dealing with trauma as represented in the book of Job. She actually has another book that's I would highly recommend to anyone who, who's interested in the idea of trauma and dealing with trauma and understanding trauma. And it's called Pain and Promise, Jeremiah. And it's, it's a discussion of the book of Jeremiah and how it accurately represents, reflects a person who is trying to deal with the trauma that they're, they're witnessing around them. The disjointed nature, the, the trying to find a reason, uh, just the, the, the things that Jeremiah writes and how he goes about it and the way that the book's put together. So many people have looked at it and said, oh, it's not cohesive. Oh, it's got all this, these weird things about it. It can't actually be written by one author. And she makes the point, no, this is a person dealing with trauma. And this is what it looks like when actual human beings deal with trauma, trying to make mm -hmm. sense of that trauma. And so the book of Jeremiah just like the book of Job, are dealing with these subjects of trauma, mm -hmm. which is so important for us as Christians, as believers, to really know how to deal with people who are going through trauma. Because we go through trauma, we know people who have gone through trauma. And if we can understand the human psychology, especially as represented through Scripture, on how people go through trauma and deal with trauma, we have a better idea of just how to help people cope with their trauma and to not be and to heal from the trauma. friends with right. the really horrible advice right and not, yeah, or the blaming and, and shaming right which uh, we're going to get into those different archetypes those different ways of responding to someone else's trauma that the friends represent but if you want to get a, a heads up on that if you want to get a head start on that before uh, we get there you can listen to the Book of Job, a Bible study course by Kathleen M. O'Connor. It's audio only. There is no there is no text version of it, but it is it's a really excellent dive into this concept of trauma and just how the Book of Job represents it. So I think that one of the things that I have noticed when I've been reading through Job recently is that there's a lot of what sounds very much like David in the Psalms mm. yeah, running through it. it yeah. It's almost, it's not quite quoting, but it's definitely like pulling from, from Job in, right. in a lot of the Psalms. Oh, and David. there's a lot of other authors that you can kind of hear pieces of their words in Job. And it's really yeah. fascinating to see these and even just like these very quotable sections that I didn't even remember that they were in Job. Right. You know, um, though he slay me, still I will trust him. Yeah. These kinds of things that, I mean, sure, I probably should have remembered that that was from Job. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's just so, this book is just, ah, uh, it's really one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. And I just love all of the everythingness. Right. <laughs> so with that, uh, any any last thing you'd like to say before we close? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, Book of Job, I'm looking forward to it. I know, I know Rebecca's looking forward <laughs> to it. And I hope you, the listener, that you're looking forward to it as well. So um, be prepared next week to crack open the Book of Job. Oh, one last, one last note, just reminded, on how we're going to proceed through this book. Uh, with the book of Ecclesiastes, we proceeded chapter by chapter. 
with the book of Job, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to take it more section by section. So when we get to the sections that are said by the friends, their speeches, we're going to try and do the whole speech at once. Now, when we get to some of Job's longer speeches or we get to God's really long speech at the end, the we'll break those down back some. and forth, we will break those down some. Uh, but for the most part, we're going to try and address each of the friends in a, in a one-stop, uh, one-shot uh, discussion on that friend and the content of, of their speech and the, the overall story. Um, so this isn't going to take 40 weeks to get through um, just because there's 40 chapters. Uh, it, we're we're going to take... Uh, we'll do chunks figure, at a time. Out, but it'll probably be around the same number of episodes as the book of Ecclesiastes was. So with that being said, read ahead. Get prepared for Job. We'll likely do chapters 1 and 2 next time just because it kind of sets up the whole story and, and gets everything rolling. So until then... Seek life. And all that you do. Shalom. shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.